You know, I've heard reports about that, too. Speaking of reports, Mr. C., mm-hmm. where'd you get that first name of yours? That sounds like one to me. Well, I tell you, back in the knee britches days when I was a wee little tyke, a mere broth of a lad, as we say in Spokane, I used to totter around the streets with a gun on each hip. My favorite after-school pastime was a game known as cops and robbers, and I didn't care which side I was on. When a cop or a robber came in view, I would haul out my trusty six-shooters, made of wood, and loudly exclaim, bang, bang. As my luckless victim fell, clutching his side, I would shout, bang, bang, and I'd let him have it again. Then as his friends came to his rescue, shooting as they came, I would shout, bang, da bang, 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 bang. I'm surprised they didn't call you Killer Crosby. Now tell me another story, Grandpa. No, so help me, that's the truth. <laughs> Ask Mr. DeMille. Now vouch for it, Bing. The Ford Roadshow, starring Bing Crosby. You're ahead in the Ford all the way. Brought to you by Ford, America's best-selling V8, 25 years straight. A fellow named Gene Austin sang a lot of songs, a lot of great songs. He made a lot of records, too, that sold over a million. And in the days, too, when there, there were only a million or so phonographs in the land. But I suppose my blue heaven, in fact, I'm confident about it, must have been his biggest. When whippoorwills call In September of 1957, Bing Crosby now 54 years old, was gearing up to host the Edsel TV special and generating praise for his recent dramatic role as Earl Carlton in Man on Fire. He won an Academy Award, had his own radio show since 1931, and championed the widespread use of primetime network transcription. He got disenchanted with having to be at a certain point every week, and he became disenchanted with audiences, not with people, but with audiences of people who camped in the neighborhood of Sunset and Vine. There were certain people who had a horrible laugh. They exploited this because their friends would say, I heard you laugh on the Bing Crosby show. I heard you laugh on the Hope show, you know? Uh, you know. <laughs> so in the later years, when tape came in, Bing went to his own expense of transporting the show to San Francisco. We made many of the shows in the Marine Auditorium in San Francisco. We went up on Sunday night and recorded on uh, in late Monday afternoon and came back. The Ford Road Show featuring Bing Crosby debuted on September 2nd, 1957. It aired five days per week on CBS for five minutes. These were taped segments edited by Mundo McKenzie and written and produced by Bill Morrow. The Just Heard John Scott Trotter conducted the orchestra. It included an opening theme, one or two songs by Bing, and commercials by Ken Carpenter. This episode aired on September 24th. What was the best thing you've been associated with? What did you enjoy the most? Oh, I don't know. I enjoyed the whole thing. That is, radio was a, was a wonderful time to work in those days, a great time, because that was it. People had that for entertainment. The great thing about it was, I think, about radio above television is it was it was consistent that the show went on and stayed in that same spot year mm. after year after year and I think it sold merchandise regardless of ratings just because it was there you know mm-hmm. I think it's unfortunate that they switched the shows around so much you get used to a, a television show in a certain particular spot a night you look forward to it all of a sudden it's on a different night yeah
Bing, if someone asked you to write a lyric about the 57 Ford V8, uh, how would you go about it? Well, that's quite a question. I'll tell you what I think I'd do, Ken. I'd seek inspiration by riding in a, in a years-ahead new 57 Ford with a Thunderbird V8 engine. Thus, you see, I'd refresh my memory on the glorious way she goes up high hills and, and makes traffic a treat. Then I'd stand back and I'd gander that years-ahead sculptured styling of the 57 Ford, and I should then let fly with the following paean of praise. Ford V8 For style and power drive the Ford V8 The very lowest of the low price three Just drive and see Why Ford's the most from coast to coast in popularity And 57 Fords are styled ahead to hold their youth for years and years Before your old bus looks funny Get in the money, trade it for Ford today. And so concludes another session. And thanks very much. The Ford Road Show, starring Bing Crosby with Buddy Cole's music, has been brought to you by Ford, America's best-selling V8, 25 years straight. Listen for the other Ford Road shows with the World News Roundup, Rosemary Clooney, Arthur Godfrey, and Edward R. Murrow. Ford's agency of record, J. Walter Thompson, saturated radio with five-minute segments. They also sponsored a show with Rosemary Clooney, a chit-chat by Arthur Godfrey, and news by Edward R. Murrow. Moderator for a report on integration is CBS News Washington correspondent Griffin Bancroft. Well, the headlines in the news about school integration in the South right now are all in Little Rock, Arkansas. But in addition, there is still the broader question. Just what progress has integration made in the South since the Supreme Court outlawed separate schools in its decision of May 17, 1954? What is the background of Little Rock and what will be its effect on the future? What is the situation in the South today? Earlier in this episode, we spoke of the Civil Rights Act of 1957 and the Hattie Cotton Elementary School bombing in Nashville, Tennessee. With forced integration underway, federal troops needed to be called out to Little Rock, Arkansas, where a group of nine African-American students enrolled in Little Rock Central High School were stopped from attending by the state's governor. On September 27th, CBS Radio ran a special on the progress, or lack thereof, in Southern school integration in the three years following Brown versus the Board of Education. ...vineyard that our guests have labored. So Mr. Shoemaker, as executive director of the Southern Education Reporting Service, suppose we start with you and ask you to give us a general picture of just what is the status of integration in the South today. <clears throat> yes, Mr. Bancroft, let me give it to you very briefly. There is a uh, considerable amount of desegregation in the border states, the upper tier of states. Uh, there is a lesser amount in the uh, states of the Mid-South, in fact, a very small amount, and pretty solid segregation in the Deep South. There are 745 school districts which have desegregated since 1954 out of about 3,000 that are biracial. Well, uh, before we go any farther, Mr. Shoemaker, I wonder if I could ask you to explain briefly just what your organization is and how it works and how you get this information. Yes, Southern Education Reporting Service was set up in 1954, as you said, to trace developments in this field. We get our information through a core of correspondents of whom these uh, 
three gentlemen are members, and uh, we publish Southern School News, and uh, we have just are preparing to bring out this book with all deliberate speed, which summarizes the developments in this field in the uh, three years since the Supreme Court and decision. And these newsmen here, I know they have each contributed a chapter to this book, and they are part of your staff, in effect. Yes, Is that each, correct? each one of them has contributed among 11 contributors. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, uh, Mr. James has written uh, one of the opening chapters, uh, which deals in uh, large part with the situation in the border states. And if you'd like, we might uh, begin at that point. I think that's fine. Well, Mr. James, Mr. James. Uh, the general summary. <coughs> well, as Mr. Shoemaker was saying, in the border states, uh, there's been a much higher degree of compliance with the court's decree. I think it'd be worthwhile to uh, limit ourselves briefly to a look at what happened in Kentucky, which regards itself as a southern state, but which has not followed the deep south pattern. The moment the Supreme Court ruled in 1954, the governor of Kentucky, at that time Governor Weatherby, mm -hmm. said immediately that Kentucky will do whatever is necessary to comply with the law. The Republican senator, the only one at that time, Senator John Sherman Cooper, said just about the same thing. And then various state officials and school superintendents like Mr. Carmichael and Louisville all sort of got onto the general uh, compliance uh, theme and said the, it was more or less inevitable, let's face it, and get on with it. In the three years since then, we've had uh, no integration the first year because of local legal rulings as far as state law were concerned until the Supreme Court's implementation ruling in 1955. Immediately that year, several districts desegregated. In the past two years, including the opening of school this past month, this month, you now have 105 districts in Kentucky desegregated uh, out of 217. But in those 105 districts, you have 80% of the Negro school-age pupils of the state. That is pretty well the, the border pattern with the <coughs> possible exception of Delaware. Uh, and uh, then uh, quite the other side of it, West Virginia, I believe since the opening of schools this year, is the first state to have 100% desegregation in its counties. Yes. Well, mind you, I think we couldn't leave the border states without pointing out that they have had their troubles, as all readers of newspaper headlines know. The city of Louisville had remarkably little or none at a time when other cities or towns in Kentucky were having the National Guard called out and state troopers sent in a year ago. Well, now, what about the, the Deep South? Mr. Workman, you, uh, uh, you're stationed in that area. That is your bailiwick, is it? What, what is the status of things there? Yes, Mr. Bancroft, and the story with respect to the Deep South is completely different from that that Mr. James has just described. The... Uh, with all deliberate speed in those eight states with which I'm most concerned, at least in this book, has been that the deliberate speed has been, in almost every instance, in the opposite direction. That is, towards strengthening segregation <coughs> and maintaining the separate schools which have existed through the years. Now, there's been recently, and in fact, the uh, only crack that has been made in that solid wall of resistance has come uh, this year, beginning of this school year, in North Carolina with the admission of Negroes to schools on a very limited basis and after screening in the towns of uh, Charlotte, Raleigh, and Winston-Salem. That was done with the... Uh, Excuse me, Bill Greensboro yes. instead of Raleigh. Oh, I'm sorry, yes, yes Greensboro. <clears throat> but the fact of the matter is that in each of these instances, 
It was done by the action of the local school board in accord with the North Carolina Pupil Placement Law, which, as I said, makes for screening and admission of selected Negro students to these white schools. But other than for that, if you take the huge uh, crescent that we call the Deep South, and that sweeps from Virginia through North and South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana, with Florida thrown in, the resistance there has been, to use a Virginia term, massive. And there is now, uh, with the exception of the three North Carolina communities I mentioned, there has not been admitted any Negro student to any white school in that entire area in the three years since.